It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Folks, I am not kicking things off here with another sex scandal story, just in a tawdry attempt to get you to listen to this podcast. That would be disingenuous. But I've actually shown restraint on this political scandal that's consuming Florida. Haven't touched it for days after originally reporting it. But now the Washington Post reports, and others, of course, that the chairman of the Florida Republican Party, Christian Ziegler, is unfit for office. This just happened on Sunday and stripped him of his authority while cutting his $120,000 salary to $1. So they've completely knocked him out of the game without actually getting rid of him. And this is all based on a rape allegation that was made against Ziegler uh, back in November, criminal investigation by the local police, growing calls for him to resign. I don't know what's the point of hanging on to a job now, where he has no authority and it pays $1 a year. Uh, So I guess there's going to be a vote the beginning of the month in Tallahassee on whether to kick him out of office. Um, One source said that uh, Ziegler spoke at the meeting and apologized, that he brought shame to the party and to his family. He mentioned donors who promised to donate if he got through the crisis. Huh. So... The accuser, whose name has not been publicly released, told police the alleged rape took place in October. She had previously had a three-way sexual encounter with Ziegler and his wife, Bridget, and they'd all arranged to meet again. But she canceled when Ziegler said his wife couldn't make it. He then came alone to her apartment and assaulted her. She told police. So I only bring this up because, well, the word threesome does make you wonder. Uh, And at the same time, it's a serious rape allegation against the chairman of the Florida GOP. Okay, ProPublica, which uh, wrote all those stories about Clarence Thomas uh, getting huge amounts of money from wealthy friends, uh, has now come out with a piece yesterday saying that in 2000, Thomas went to a Georgia beach resort, gave a keynote speech for conservative organizations, for a conservative organization that paid for his trip. Didn't disclose it. On the flight back home, he sat next to former Congressman Cliff Stearns, who got the impression that Thomas was thinking about resigning. He told Stearns, one or more justices will leave soon unless Congress took some action to give him and his fellow justices a pay raise. And Stearns sent Thomas a letter saying he would look into a bill to raise uh, the salaries. This is a common, often chief justices say all judges should get a pay raise and certainly the top nine. Stearns telling ProPublica his importance as a conservative was paramount. We wanted to make sure he felt comfortable in his job and he was being paid properly. His salary back then, $173,000, which would be more than $300,000 today adjusted for inflation. But 
Thomas was dealing with some major expenses, for example, buying a high-end RV after borrowing $267,000 from a friend. Okay, Google having to shell out $700 bucks to settle an antitrust lawsuit brought by state prosecutors. $630 million of that will go into a fund that will be divided among about 100 million eligible customers across all 50 states, D.C., Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands. Settlements of the deal were uh, revealed late yesterday. Another $70 million will go into a fund used by states to resolve other related claims. Google estimates that at least 70% of eligible consumers, or 71 million people, will receive automatic payments without having to file a claim. Yeah, that's my kind of money. So what, what is this about? Google um, will simplify the process to sideload apps or download them to their phones directly from a developer's website instead of going through the Google Play Store. Also agreed to give all app developers the option to use to allow users to pay through third-party systems instead of Google's payment system. Google had required that most app developers use Google's billing system, which just happened to take a cut of 30%. So this is a pretty successful suit. And basically, to be eligible, you have to live in one of the 50 states and, and these territories. And you have to have half a brain. Because if you use Gmail, if you use Google Docs, if you use any kind of Google, if you just search with Google, you're probably eligible. No estimate on how much the average person would receive. But, you know, 630 million is a lot. On the other hand, there are 50 states. Oh, so divided among 71 million people. Does that mean everybody, including me, will get about a million? I'll have to check that math. Okay, Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss, the uh, former Georgia election workers who just won that defamation suit against Rudy Giuliani have filed another lawsuit against the former Trump lawyer for his repetitive false speech and harassment. Now, they're not asking for any money. I guess they feel like they can get by on the $148 million uh, that the jury has also assessed, which can be modified, by the way, by the judge. It's because he go, he's been on this tour now. He goes on Newsmax. Uh, he talks to reporters and said no. Uh, it's terrible that they've received death threats. I had nothing to do with that. But the uh, original comments I made were true. Well, they're found by a court of law to be false, that they were tampering with balance. And he keeps saying it. Defendant Giuliani's statements, coupled with his refusal to agree to refrain from continuing to make such statements, make clear he intends to persist in this campaign of targeted defamation and harassment. It must stop. And by the way, when Rudy did that the first time, which was during a break in the trial before the damages were awarded, the judge said, warned his attorney that he could be sued again, as he now has been. Now, at this point, you, you mean, I don't know how much this money they're ever going to receive. I don't think it will be close to $148 million. But this mother and daughter just want Rudy to leave them alone. Uh, this is interesting. NAACP President Derek Johnson claiming the attacks against the Harvard president, Claudine Gay, are nothing more than political theatrics advancing a white 
supremacist agenda. Enough is enough. So, as uh, a National Review writer wrote, what's equally disconcerting is the selective silence of major newsrooms on the matter. Why did we read about Claudine Gay's plagiarism first in the Free Beacon and not in the Washington Post or New York Times? For that matter, why did we not read of it in the Boston Globe? It's in the paper's own backyard. So this is just more playing of the race card. This is all happening to Claudine Gay because she's Harvard's first black president. When, in fact, she did it to herself with her disastrous testimony about anti-Semitism on campus and how she didn't, wouldn't even make a statement condemning it and then the very next day apologized. All right, I'm just getting warmed up here, folks. So story number one. You turn on MSNBC every hour. You turn on CNN, maybe not every hour, but pretty regularly. There are segment after segment after segment after segment about Donald Trump using the language of fascist, Donald Trump uh, being compared to Adolf Hitler, Donald Trump targeting immigrants, and not to mention said he wanted to be dictator for a day, but a week later dismissed that as a joke. Now, whatever Donald Trump says is fair game. Let's get that straight. You're quoting the guy's own words, leading presidential candidate for the Republican nomination. Uh, what's wrong with that? The people who say it shouldn't be reported at all don't understand how politics and journalism should work. Just don't get it. I think the conventional wisdom until recently has been well, you know, Trump says most of his stuff on Truth Social. Uh, it's repetitive of what he said before. Who really cares? Why should we give him the oxygen? Why should we give him the platform? But now that just about everybody realizes is that Trump has a pretty good shot at even winning a general election, a lot can happen between now and then. This is suddenly getting constant attention. I don't have any problem with that. I mean, any network can overdo it on any story. And then they go off and do their own analysis, which, of course, is anti-Trump, because that's the way many top news organizations now view themselves. So over the weekend, former president was at a rally and he said this about immigrants, illegal immigrants. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done, he said in New Hampshire. They poison mental institutions and prisons all over the world, not just in South America, not just in three or four countries that we think about, but all over the world. They're coming into our country from Africa, from Asia, all over the world. So here's how The Washington Post handles it. Trump's comments are particularly notable in that he explicitly links the poisoning of our blood to predominantly non-white areas of the world. Back in September, Trump linked the term blood poisoning to how people are coming in with disease. His new comments are merely the latest in a long compendium of ugly and racist comments about immigrants, Muslims, and racial minorities. In September, it's the blood of our country. What they're doing is destroying our country. So one of the reasons I didn't go haywire over this is that Trump had said some version of this before. The actual here, I just read you from September, the blood of our country attacking minorities. 
Doesn't mean I like it, but again, it deserves to be covered. Oh, in an interview on September 27th, they're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. Now, Joe Scarborough, among others, went off on this. He said it's getting worse for Trump. Then he turned to those who complain about the coverage he gets for these antics without acknowledging why they're newsworthy. I am still shocked by the clowns who claim to be media critics out there, just absolute clowns, that attack the media for reporting this. It sounds like you just don't get it. You don't understand his connection with the audience. You have to just understand you're actually helping him by focusing on saying he is fascist. Uh, I think he didn't like a comment or two that was made on Fox and Friends. He's certainly not talking about me because I'm always pro-reporting this. Now, Scarborough seems to be saying, you're building him up every time you report that he has fascist desires and so forth. The Post story goes on to say that he re-upped his rhetoric. A similar version of the phrase appears in Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. In a 1990 interview with Vanity Fair, his late first ex-wife, Ivana, said the future president kept a collection of Hitler's speeches in their bedroom. Ivana recounted an instance of a Trump organization greeting his boss. When he visits Donald in his office, Ivana told a friend, he clicks his heels and says, Heil Hitler, possibly as a family joke. Not a particularly funny one, if you ask me. Uh, last April... Donna Trump told her lawyer, Michael Kennedy, that from time to time, her husband reads a book of Hitler's collected speeches, My New Order, which he keeps in a cabinet by his bed. Okay, um, so the Vanity Fair writer, Marie Brenner, talked to Trump and he said, if I had these speeches, and I'm not saying that I do, I would never read them. Here's Politico. Comparing your political opponent's words to Adolf Hitler's used to be controversial. But Donald Trump continues to use rhetoric that historians say, as opposed to the media, reeks of fascism. And now Joe Biden's campaign has entered a surreal routine of calling him out on it. Biden campaign aide responded to this latest instance over the weekend by circulating the comments to staffers. Um, do they not use the World Wide Web? Do they not watch television? Do you really need somebody in the White House to send this out anyway. So Michael Tyler, the campaign's communications director, every time he says it, we're going to call it out. He's going to echo the rhetoric of Hitler and Mussolini, and, every, and we're going to make sure that people understand just how serious this is every single time. Now, the problem is calling it out with a statement from the campaign, which barely gets mentioned, isn't doing anything. If Joe Biden wants to call out Donald Trump on his rhetoric about immigrants, about the poisoning of the blood, about potential fascism, he needs to do it himself on camera. He's deliberately not doing that. I don't know, stay above the fray or something, but it's just so weak, a written statement. And occasionally the White House sort of Damage control spokesman Ian Sams goes on TV, but, you know, nothing gets attention like sound from the incumbent president of the United States. Um, meanwhile, Biden was asked about why he's losing to Trump in the polls. You know, a quick question as he uh, 
was getting into his car. That was the, where the incident where a car crashed into a parked Secret Service SUV that was blocking the intersection, and fortunately, uh, nobody seriously hurt. You're reading the wrong polls, Biden said. He has this thing about it's only a couple of polls. Uh, however, in a new poll by the New York Times, just out today, registered voters say they favor Trump over Biden by two points, 46 to 44. All right, that's a virtual tie. It's a statistical tie. Job approval rating has slid to 37%, down two points from July. That ain't great for Joe. And there's a question about whether these some of these disaffected voters will even vote when the race is flipped among the likely electorate. Biden leads Trump by two points, so he can hold on to that. Again, these are both statistical ties. So voters 18 to 29, nearly three quarters of them disapprove of the way Biden's handling the conflict in Gaza. Among registered voters, they say they would vote for Trump 49 to 43 percent. And back in July, the same age group before the Mideast war backed Biden by 10 percent. Now, given a choice, narrow plurality overall of voters, 44 percent said Israel should stop its military campaign to protect against civilian casualties. Estimated as 20,000 people killed. I don't know if that figure is accurate, but it is certainly as many, many, many thousands. A similar number in this survey, 39%, said the opposite. Israel should continue its military campaign, even if it means civilian casualties in Gaza mount. So some contradictory impulses here. By the way, uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott yesterday signed a measure allowing Texas law enforcement officials to arrest migrants who entered the state from Mexico without legal organization. You know what? A lot of Democrats, including New York Mayor Eric Adams, also very unhappy with the migrant situation. And in other Trump-related news, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals has upheld a lower court ruling that found that Mark Meadows... Trump's last chief of staff, former congressman, and under indictment in the Georgia case, has not proven his alleged conduct, charged as part of the sweeping case, was related to his official duties as a White House official. And so he lost his appeal to move, effort to move this to federal court from state court. And finally, in this rather long Trump segment, a rant, a lengthy one on Truth Social, saying that Judge Engeron in the New York civil fraud case illegally and unconstitutionally gagged me and my lawyers in a brazen and blatant attempt to prevent us from bringing vital information to the public and the courts. Gag order is very narrow and talks about that he can't attack the court staff. The racist attorney general, that's Letitia James, and the runaway judge are causing grave damage to our justice system, to New York State, the United States of America. The New York State Attorney General, who has total control of the judge, interesting theory, used this case to run for governor when she failed. She should be disbarred for what she has done as murder and violent crime hit all-time highs. Actually, the peak was some time ago, but okay, there's a lot of crime in New York City, certainly. Any business that moves to New York is crazy. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. 
the Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Number two. Conservatives, says Politico, are using new tactics to keep abortion off the ballot. In Arizona, Florida, Nevada, and other states, several anti-abortion groups are buying TV and digital ads, knocking on doors, holding events to persuade people against signing petitions to put the uh, issue before voters in November. Also appealing to state courts to keep referendums off the ballot. Because obviously this has helped the Democrats in the midterms and has helped Democrats, you know, uh, you know, Democrats who are liberals, or I guess I should just say pro-choicers, are um, winning a lot of these uh, contests over should this be enshrined in the state constitution. Those latest states at least winning some kind of abortion rights victory. Kansas, Kentucky, Michigan, Ohio. Listen to uh, Representative Brad Hall, a Missouri Republican. I do not want to see abortion put in our constitution. I believe the right to life is a fundamental right that all human beings have and certainly should not be taken away because of a vote by a simple majority. Has this fellow heard of democracy? I mean, he has every right to oppose putting it in the state constitution, not be taken away by a simple majority. The whole point of the Supreme Court's rationale in knocking down Roe v. Wade was that this would be decided at the state and local level. So here's a state lawmaker saying, yeah, not so much, because, uh, you know, we can't let, if more people vote in a pro-choice way on any referendum and then in a pro-life way, that just won't do. I, I mean, I just find that quote on the record to be pretty stunning. Number three, back to the war. As Israeli leaders consider the next phase of the war in Gaza, Pentagon Chief Lloyd Austin, who went to Israel to ratchet up the pressure campaign to reduce civilian casualties and move away from large-scale warfare that Israeli forces have been waging for most of the last two months. Now, he met with the defense minister, naturally. Now, Israel's defense minister told Lloyd Austin that it was a strategic imperative for Israel's campaign. He didn't go into details about this. Soon, he said, we'll be able to distinguish between different areas in Gaza. In every area where we achieve our mission, we'll be able to transition gradually to the next phase and start working on bringing back the local population that may be sooner in the north than south. Uh, Secretary Austin saying, I'm not here to dictate timelines or terms. Uh, he's there to pressure them to doing what the U.S. wants. Israel has every right to defend itself, but protecting Palestinian civilians in Gaza is both a moral duty and a strategic imperative. I don't think that gets very far. In fact, Bibi Netanyahu saying over the weekend he was proud, that's his word, proud, to prevent the establishment of a Palestinian state, putting him at odds with what has been U.S. policy for decades because, says Netanyahu, today everybody understands what that Palestinian state could have been now that we've seen the little Palestinian state in Gaza. Uh, by the way, Netanyahu has paid lip service to the idea of a two-state solution for a very long time while making sure absolutely nothing is done to move in that direction. Even when the Israelis got 
an offer, this is at the end of the Clinton administration, that gave them virtually everything they wanted in exchange for, you know, limited Palestinian self-rule. Number four, Pope Francis is now allowing priests to bless same-sex couples, according to the Vatican, what the New York Times calls his most definitive step yet, says the New York Times, to make the Roman Catholic Church more welcoming to LGBTQ Catholics and more reflective of his vision of a more pastoral, less rigid church. Now, the Vatican had long prohibited this because the church opposes same-sex marriage. But the new rule by the Pope says that same-sex marriage, the blessing of same-sex couple, that is, was not the same as a marriage sacrament, which is considered part of church doctrine. It also stressed it was not blessing the relationship and that to avoid confusion, blessings should not be imparted during or connected to the ceremony of a civil or same-sex union or when there are any clothing, gestures, or words that are proper to a wedding. It's better to give these blessings uh, during a meeting with a priest, a visit to a shrine, during a pilgrimage, or as a prayer recited in a group. Now, this is contradictory. I, I'm very glad the Pope is taking this action. He's 87 years old, and I he must figure, during his attack on some of the conservative cardinals, that, you know, He's running out of time to ensure this legacy. I remember, you know, soon after he became Pope Francis, him saying when asked by reporters about gay people, who am I to judge? But this is like don't ask, don't tell under Bill Clinton's initial policy. The church opposes same-sex marriage. According to church doctrine, you should not be able to marry somebody of the same sex. But if you're really quiet about it and you do it in a group or you do it with a priest, nobody really sees you, then it's okay for a same-sex couple to receive a blessing. So he's just, you know, he, Pope Francis knows if he tries to change the doctrine, I mean, it would just tear the church apart. In fact, there have been conservative breakaways in the Anglican Church, Methodist Church, Presbyterian, and other churches. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Number five. I've talked on the podcast and I have talked on Sunday's Media Buzz about this extraordinary 17,000 word essay by James Bennett, the fired editorial page editor of the New York Times, waited three years, but had a lot to say. And I just want to talk about it some more because I think it's so important and the lessons and insights here are not only very sophisticated, this is not just a sour grapes piece, although you could say, obviously, um, getting even with his former publication, but raises questions for all of journalism. And I have a column on this. I don't plug every column, but I think I was able to, in, the, in a little bit lengthy piece by me, get in to a lot of the things that Bennett says in this Economist essay that have not gotten as much attention as him, you know, punching the New York Times in the nose. So ultimately, this is about the deterioration of journalism. And by the way, I don't agree with everything James Bennett does. Uh, it's hard to imagine, even though it wasn't flagged for him, that he didn't read the online op-ed by Republican Senator Tom Cotton before it was posted online. 
I mean, he had to know this would stir some controversy. Uh, the GOP senator saying that, you know, federal troops should be used. The federal troops should be used to suppress rioting. And the Times had published many other columns, Rapid, that took a different, a different view. So this is a former editor of The Atlantic. And he says the Times' problem has metastasized from liberal bias to illiberal bias, uh, impulse to shut down debate altogether. And it wasn't just the opinion section. This is a, a little bit of inside baseball, but actually quite important. As the top editors let bias creep into certain areas of coverage, such as culture, lifestyle, and business, that made the core harder to defend and undermine the authority of even the best reporters. There never used to be columnists at these other sections, lifestyle, culture, and business. But suddenly there were, and suddenly almost all of them were out-and-out -out liberals, whereas Bennett believed he was hired to run the opinion section and provide more of a variety of voices to assert that the Times plays by the same rules it always has is to commit hypocrisy that is transparent to conservatives, dangerous to liberals, and bad for the country as a whole. And by the way, in terms of hypocrisy, Bennett gets there to take over and discovers there's not one black editor in the opinion section and sets about to change that. Of the 11 regular columnists, two were women, one was a person of color, which must mean uh, Jamal Bowie. Okay, so one day, this was like an early warning sign, Bennett decided to publish a page of pro-Trump letters because he'd gotten a lot of them interesting and wanted to depart for one day and give the other side its say. I was astonished, he says, by the fury of my Times colleagues. I found myself facing an angry internal town hall trying to justify what to me was an obvious journalistic decision. During the session, one of the newsroom's journalists demanded to know when I would publish a page of letters from Barack Obama supporters. I stammered out some kind of answer. The question just didn't make sense to me, since the paper published pro-Obama and anti-Trump lawyers letters virtually every day. Now, to me, the greatest single indictment in the piece is that publisher A.G. Salzberger, who, by the way, responded and said that uh, Ben is peddling a false narrative and that the Times opinion section has does now include more conservative voices. But when the flap first erupted, Salzberger, whose family owns the company, emailed Bennett to say, I get and support the reason for including the piece, since he thought Cotton's view was backed by the Trump White House and most senators. When he talked to Dean Baquet, then the executive editor, the first black editor of the New York Times, um, then Baquet agreed, saying, look, Tom Cotton's a potential presidential candidate. And then came the explosion from the woke newsroom. And three days after that initial show of support, Salzberger, with icy anger, fired Bennett. In my view, he had caved. Now, one last thing. I'll just close with this because I think it is the most stunning words in the entire essay. To the shock and horror of the newsroom in 2016, Trump won the presidency. Shock, horror. Many Times staff members, scared, angry, assumed the Times was supposed to help lead 
the resistance. And they surely believe that today. And it's not just the New York Times. There are many journalists, former journalists, and certainly commentators, etc., who don't just strongly oppose Donald Trump, who don't just want to talk and write about Hitler and fascism, but act like they're part of the resistance, the opposition party. And that, I think, continues to chip away at the credibility of journalism. Thanks for hanging with me as uh, we went a little long today. I know you have a life to get back to, and I'll get back to my other work. Uh, hope you'll stop by tomorrow for more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.